Welcome back once again to Principles of Environmental Toxicology. Well, for the next two lectures, we're actually going to do some synthesizing. We're going to do some synthesizing of much of the material that you have learned in the past lectures and at least for the first time put it to play. Put it to play perhaps like uh, some of the exam questions that you faced in terms of developing a, a fundamental sort of basis to do some risk assessment and risk management, the title of today's lecture. This lecture and this subject is a fairly broad one. Uh, there are people who take on careers as risk assessors, risk managers. Uh, all of the aspects of what we'll talk about in the next two lectures actually present uh, for many of the students in this class potential career opportunities. I, in fact, know of four or five students that are actually, as their jobs, uh, doing risk assessment. Uh, they're risk assessors for various agencies uh, here in the Northwest. Uh, so, in fact, this is perhaps, uh, more than anything, a way to kind of synthesize your academic backgrounds into perhaps some career. We face risk. We face risk when we wake up in the morning, eat uh, our breakfast. Uh, when we walk uh, across the street, we face risk. How do we assess on a personal basis, but more importantly, on a societal or community basis? How do we assess this risk, weigh the benefits against those potential risks, and apply our energies, our resources, our treasure, if you will, uh, to mitigating or modifying that risk? Uh, in a certain sense, risk is, uh, and risk assessment is the black art of toxicology because there isn't necessarily a precise formula in how to do it and how to communicate it. It is a very difficult challenge to tell someone accurately what their level of risk is because we tend to personalize risk depending upon our own backgrounds. And we'll talk about some of the cognitive biases that we have about risk. You probably, among your friends, know of risk takers, uh, kids that uh, perhaps uh, ride motorcycles, uh, jump out of airplanes, uh, smoke cigarettes, uh, do sorts of risky behaviors, extreme sports sometimes. Uh, they like to speed. They like to cruise through stop lights or stop signs. Yet those very same people may be very, very violently opposed to certain amounts of risk that are applied to them in their daily lives through the actions or activities of others, especially when those actions or activities have potential economic gain for the other party. These are some of the complexities associated with risk management and risk communication, and we'll discuss these in these two lectures. Today, what we're going to do in terms of learning objectives, we're actually going to broadly try to develop an understanding of risk assessment and its role within the risk management process. And this is a very, very challenging uh, task in and of itself. This is going to be a fairly complex, loaded lecture. We're going to try to define some aspects of risk and risk management, risk communication, risk characterization, uh, and risk management. Try and get through all of these and then go through at least the EPA Superfund risk process for human health risk assessment in contaminated hazardous waste sites. We'll try to make sure that you understand how to differentiate between risk assessment and risk management. Now think about this, and this is an important point to take home from this lecture. If you are charged with risk management, sometimes you have a dog in the fight. Uh, for example, you own the property that perhaps is contaminated. 
there perhaps is an economic incentive to cheat in terms of communicating or accurately modifying the risk associated with your property. So risk assessment should be an independent and very honest process that works with risk management. They should actually be separate processes to be the best in terms of overall risk strategies. We're going to try to have you develop as well a basic understanding on how to conduct and evaluate uncertainty analysis for a risk assessment. If you remember in our lecture last time talking about dioxins, I introduced at the National Academy of Sciences just this past year chastised the EPA for not adequately determining the uncertainty in their decision-making process associated with dioxins. Essentially, the National Academy of Sciences said to EPA, go back to the drawing board. Your conclusions may be correct, but we need a quantization of the uncertainty associated with the outcomes. It's actually the context and content for the entire next lecture. We'll talk a lot more in uh, risk assessment and risk management number two lecture where we'll talk about how to quantify the different approaches, statistical and otherwise, to quantifying uncertainty. Think about this, if you will. Uh, we've talked about, for example, drinking water standards. And there's a drinking water standard uh, for uh, some chemical in, uh, in water. Uh, let's say that standard is 50 parts per billion, 50 uh, uh, micrograms uh, per liter. Uh, 50 micrograms per liter, 50 parts per billion. What we find is that uh, if an analysis comes back with, from the laboratory at 51, is that a violative, is that a risk, uh, risky sample uh, in terms of the drinking water that it represents? What we're going to try to do is be able to calibrate whether or not 51 indeed is an exceedance with regards to risk assessment. And we'll talk about that uh, in risk assessment and also in sampling and analysis further on in the course. Well, it was Daniel Defoe, who was the uh, English author of uh, Robinson Crusoe uh, in the 16 and 1700s, it said, fear of danger is 10,000 times more terrifying than danger itself. So our cognitive beliefs, our perceptions, have a lot to do with how we view risk. And in a certain sense, our experiences and our imagination play an important role in determining whether or not we view a particular situation as uh, a specifically risky situation. In terms of our perceptions and preferences of risks, we find that experts, uh, one day that many of the students in this class may be regarded as an expert in this particular field or in a field where they are opining on a particular situation relative to whether or not it is a risky situation. But we find that there is a dissonance, a disagreement often between the public and experts about risk. And why is that? Why don't they just listen to us as experts? We know, we've studied, we've got white lab coats on, we've got uh, years of uh, higher education. Why don't they just be quiet and listen to us? Well, it has a lot to do with people and their own belief systems and their perceptions about certain actions and activities. When they do study individuals, and this is from a STAR study in 1969, they found that people accept risk 1,000 times greater if they are voluntary. 
So, for example, driving a car, even though driving a car in the United States is highly lethal, if you look at the annual mortality rates, uh, uh, 40, 50, 60,000 people a year die, many others uh, injured severely in automobile accidents. Yet most of us don't regard driving a car as a risky business. But there are other things that we are, uh, that we do uh, very rapidly associate with high levels of risk. Uh, and these have to do my, most often with involuntary actions. Uh, there is great fear and trepidation, for example, about nuclear disasters, even though the number of nuclear disasters uh, since we've uh, come into the nuclear age has been minimal, one, two, three, four, five uh, nuclear disasters. Granted, the potential is there, but this is involuntary, and in a certain sense, because many of the details are unknown, it is a scary situation to many people. So they fear that about a thousand times more than perhaps doing something that they do every day that is a risky behavior. What researchers find is that risk attributes do lead to some level of cognitive bias. In other words, what people will view as being an unacceptable risk because of their belief and their understanding and their perceptions. Some of these attributes have to do with the availability. And one of the availabilities in terms of our mind is can we imagine scenarios? And in a certain sense, the media has done a good job in helping us imagine scenarios because they actually portray them in movies, videos, and sometimes even in news reports uh, by selective focusing on a camera, for example, on the problem, the one bloodied person in, an, in a situation when in fact there are hundreds if not thousands of survivors that didn't uh, uh, survive that situation. So in a certain sense, they cultivate our imagination. They make the perception of nasty outcomes of risky situations a little bit more available and unacceptable to us. Now, it, none of these actually uh, these attributes uh, suggest that we should not have uh, some fear and be able to calculate uh, risk in terms of our own survivability. I think our abilities to analyze situations, our abilities to actually apply cognitive bias is a part of our evolutionary struggle to survive, to analyze a situation and try to make the best decision. The best decision will often keep us in the gene pool as it has in past history. Anchoring is another uh, risk attribute, and this is about our own personal background knowledge. What is our own situation? Have you been in uh, risky situations? You know, for example, have you uh, been a skydiver? Your fear of skydiving uh, and jumping out of a perfectly good airplane is going to be a heck of a lot less than somebody that only imagines what that experience is going to be like. We also have a an asymmetry in terms of the respect, respective gain or loss associated with the risk. And this has to do with an attribute of risk that um, loss is valued greater. So if the potential outcomes indicate uh, perhaps equal weighting for gain and loss, we perceive loss greater. Okay, We value loss greater than we do gain. Uh, and this maybe has to do with our own uh, survivability uh, over the ages, that uh, leave good enough alone is, is essentially uh, one of the threads, perhaps, in terms of our own survival. 
There is also a threshold attribute to risk. Uh, we just are very adverse to uncertainty. We like knowns. We like predictable outcomes. In a certain sense, risk is all about uncertainty. We don't necessarily know the outcome, and so we are adverse to risk uh, in an a priori basis. And so this is a little bit of a sociological cognitive introduction uh, to the psychology of risk, the psychology of risk that makes this incredibly difficult because most of us are physical or biological scientists. We are not social scientists, and so this new domain is very difficult for many scientists to understand. Uh, it gives us great frustration. Uh, why don't they get it? Why don't they listen to us? Uh, I've heard uh, uh, scientists say in, in, in situations where they're helping to characterize risk, and they view it from a professional basis as being a very low-risk situation, yet the general public views it otherwise. Well, in toxicology, we can have uh, a broad set of activities associated with risk analysis. Remember, we're talking about the potential toxic outcomes uh, between chemistry and biology, okay? So we have to balance uh, what we know. We have to go through a mechanism of evaluating risk. We can broadly define that to include uh, components of risk assessment, risk characterization, risk communication, risk management, and then also some overriding policies that we as a community might have when we come together in a government uh, of the people in terms of modifying or managing risk. These policies, laws, and regulations that we use in terms of governments that modify social and personal behaviors. We'll go through some definitions of these. Risk assessment is quickly defined as a scientific evaluation of the probability of harm resulting from exposure to toxic substances. This is a good working definition. Now, risk characterization is a subset of the risk assessment process, and that's a description of the nature and magnitude of health risk that combines results of exposure assessment, how much are you being exposed to, and um, hazard identification, and describes the uncertainty associated with each step. You'll notice I have underlined that word uncertainty, and again, what we're going to do next lecture is try to define some mechanisms to quantifying uncertainty in the same way the National Academy of Sciences, responsible for this definition, has asked EPA to go back and do with regards to dioxin. Now, for risk communication, it's the science of communicating effectively. You've heard that term perhaps uh, many times in your own lives about the challenges of communicating effectively, but think about those in situations that are of high concern, sensitive, or controversial. It is very easy for us to sit back as an audience and watch communicators and perhaps sometimes be very critical of how they communicate in certain high-pressure situations. It's far more difficult to be behind the podium, behind the microphone, at the uh, front of the, the classroom, if you will, or the meeting hall, trying to communicate relative risk. Risk communication principles serve to create an appropriate level of outrage or concern, behavior modification, or mitigating response. And so in a certain sense, risk communication, the task is we want people to engage, okay? But we want to in them to engage at an appropriate level that's appropriate in terms of the expert analysis of the absolute level of risk. One of the uh, other aspects of uh, uh, risk analysis is risk management. 
risk management is then the next step. It's the management process. It's a decision-making process involving considerations of political, social, economic, and science and engineering factors with relevant risk assessments relating to a potential hazard so as to develop, analyze, and compare options and to select the optimal response for safety from that hazard. What this does is it essentially sends, this is the step where we start looking at risk, the risk that has been quantified and assessed in the risk assessment risk characterization steps, and start bringing in the benefits. This is where we, for example, uh, in pesticides in the human food chain, do a risk benefits analysis. We assess the risk, find out what is a tolerable risk, okay, in terms of uh, uh, non-threshold responses, below the threshold of toxic endpoints against the benefits, the economic benefits of uh, better profit at the farm, cheaper food supply, more abundant food supply, and perhaps even healthier food in terms of lack of insect or bacterial infestation in our food resources. And so this is where we manage risk. Typically, at a societal level, this is at government or community or greater uh, levels of, of interaction. We collectivize this risk in terms of what's engaging society in terms of the relative risk benefits. Now, we have the potential to have higher concern or outrage than our government demonstrates, and in fact, we typically will uh, modify an unacceptable risk management by our ballots at the box. Uh, we will protest. We will uh, be concerned if, in fact, uh, uh, this risk analysis outcome, how we approach risk management, is unacceptable to a broad segment of a democratic society. The risk triad here um, is something that I think is useful for students of toxicology to know, just so that you can identify all the complex interplay of all the actions and activities involved in risk management. It's fairly complex. Note that each one of these uh, subsets in these three triads are actually uh, typically jobs or uh, employment possibilities for people that have some aspect of risk management in their job descriptions. Now, you can also suggest that risk management is important in other aspects of our daily lives. For example, people over in the College of Business will be doing risk management relative to your investments. Okay, So there is risk management in how we do things, and there is a certain amount of personal attitude we have about how we manage personal risk. But from a societal basis, it is a complex interplay of, down here in red, risk assessment, um, risk communication, and risk management. So in risk assessment, and we'll see this in this lecture, we'll see some hazard identification. In fact, that this uh, particular process or chemical is, in fact, a hazard. We'll determine a quantitative relationship, the dose-response relationships. We'll do an exposure assessment. At this point in time, you should know that dose makes the toxin. We'll do a benefits assessment and trying to kind of come in, well, we actually do need this particular pharmaceutical because if we don't use this pharmaceutical, more people will die from malaria. We then end up with a risk characterization. That risk characterization then um, is part of the uh, risk communication challenge. That's where the consideration, after the benefits have, have been identified, you consideration, the consideration of risk benefits happens in the risk communication. Uh, there can be some psychological and sociological factors that are brought to play as well as public and political opinions. Some of these change. 
For example, there have been uh, many sorts of actions and activities that we have done historically that at that time were acceptable because of the public and political opinions, because of various uh, world factors. For example, nuclear testing. Nuclear testing in the 1950s, although it had many challenges, because of perceived or potential threats, it was viewed by many as an acceptable thing to do. Now that we know more about the risk and the potential outcomes of especially above-ground nuclear testing, we find that to be very uh, socially unacceptable, publicly unacceptable, and in most countries it is highly uh, uh, looked down on or banned. Um, but these sorts of risk communication attributes will lead to some sort of legislative mandate which enter the risk management uh, domain. And the risk management domain involves determining tolerances, for example, how much we will tolerate in this whole, uh, the number, uh, for example, of a pesticide in a food product, and then an enforcement attribute in terms of enforcing regulations. These are all part of regulatory decisions to modify particular behaviors. Sometimes those behaviors are totally unacceptable in terms of presenting unacceptable risk to the general population. Well, in risk assessment, the two major types that we'll deal with in principles of environmental toxicology are ecological risk assessment, sometimes called ERA. Uh, we'll talk about what ERA is and briefly uh, introduce it. We won't go too far in ERA because it's actually a very complex and changing uh, domain in terms of uh, patterns of ecological risk assessment. Whereas health risk, human health risk assessment, HHRA, is something that has a very well-defined pathway and we'll do that uh, in closer examination using the US EPA Superfund Risk Assessment Protocol as a guideline. This isn't the only approach to human health risk assessment. There's variations on this, but this will give you a sense of how HHRA is done. But ecological risk assessment is fundamentally uh, about ecotoxicology. Ecotoxicology is the study of the ways in which polluting agents disturb biological populations and communities. The watchwords there in that definition are populations and communities. Uh, for example, uh, if we put a road into uh, a national forest, uh, there is going to be a certain amount of toxic interaction between uh, a, uh, uh, the, the tires on the road and, and perhaps the mice that try and cross the road at an opportune time. Uh, a highly lethal situation, but that uh, probably will not have a uh, population level effect. Uh, there are some levels of toxicosis that have the potential, especially ones that are reproductive or developmental toxins, that have the ability to impact biological populations and communities. ERA, or ecological risk assessment, uh, involves ecological field surveys uh, and, uh, ter in terrestrial and aquatic environments. Uh, this is where many people uh, that have uh, wildlife biology backgrounds, fisheries backgrounds, will be involved in fish counts, bird counts, reproductive success counts, uh, analysis of certain uh, behaviors, nesting behaviors, for example, in terms of field surveys to see if, in fact, uh, there is an impact, there is a reproductive success change depending upon potential exposure to various contaminants. 
there can be some fate and transport modeling. Uh, it is always uh, a lot easier and a lot less expensive to sit down on a piece of paper or, or uh, computer and model the fate and transport to see, in fact, what might happen uh, prior to going into the field and doing uh, numerous costly uh, uh, sample analyses of air, soil, water, and animal tissue. There can be some toxicity testing where we actually go in and sample uh, animals. I have been witness uh, in my area of selenium toxicology uh, to situations where, in fact, uh, many more animals, uh, birds, for example, uh, died of what I refer to as high-velocity lead poisoning. In other words, they're shot out of the sky um, in sampling campaigns to determine if they were dying of selenium toxicosis uh, from environmental exposure. Uh, so in a certain amount, toxicity testing uh, can involve loss of life of the very animals uh, that we are trying to protect when we do risk assessment. Uh, we can look at bioaccumulation studies. There's some uh, questions and concerns. For example, right now, um, the uh, ecotoxicological risk assessment of mercury and also arsenic in terms of bioaccumulation throughout the different trophic levels in a wildlife ecosystem. And then the aspects of risk characterization out in uh, a local or wider ecology. And this is where we take a look at potential for population, uh, community, and even ecosystem levels. Obviously, for example, if a toxin has an action or an activity uh, in terms of a toxic endpoint uh, and, and lethality uh, in some cases of a particular trophic level, it can have a great disruption, for example, on the local food chain. Well, let's switch over, and for the uh, majority of the, the lecture, we're going to talk about HHRA, Human Health Risk Assessment. Um, human Health Risk Assessment is, involves predictive modeling of the threat to human health uh, posed by exposure to toxicants. And so what I promised about this course is that we take a human focus. It's just a little bit more interesting to look in the mirror. But we can apply these same basic standards in terms of doses and toxicity factors and hazard identifications and hazard quotients uh, to animal populations as well. We find that uh, in risk assessment uh, that pollutants that are systemic toxicants, this is where we actually have that dose-response relationship. We have that threshold number. That threshold number can be uh, developed as a toxicity factor. Uh, and we can come up with something referred to as a hazard quotient, which is simply defined as a dose divided by some sort of toxicity factor. For example, if the uh, toxicity factor is 10 and the dose is 10, uh, the hazard quotient will be 1. Note that because this uh, hazard quotient is, in fact, a quotient or ratio, uh, any time it is one or greater, it essentially presents us with an unacceptable risk scenario. Um, how do we come up with toxicity factors? Uh, we go back to dose-response uh, analysis or identify a maximum safe intake uh, associated with a toxicant. So less than or equal to 1.0 is typically regarded as acceptable. When you're doing this in terms of uh, human health uh, risk assessments, uh, sometimes you'll get up into the 2, 3, 4, 5, and sometimes even into the domain of 10. Uh, typically, we don't find much happening in human health risk assessment because of the diversity of our food supply. 
the diversity of uh, uh, of us in terms of locations and, and uh, water supplies. Uh, we typically don't find uh, extraordinarily large hazard quotients, uh, typically because there is consequence, and that consequence is toxicant-induced disease. Toxicant-induced disease usually has a cascade effect, once it's been identified, of eliminating sources and therefore potential exposure. However, I might say that hazard quotients uh, uh, approaching or exceeding 20 uh, sometimes are found when you're doing this analysis for animal populations, especially animal populations that are confined uh, in terms of their range. Uh, for example, a population of, uh, of gophers that might be associated with a contaminated uh, waste area. The range of these gophers uh, might uh, actually be significantly smaller than the contaminated area. Well, one of the things we have to recognize in human health risk assessment uh, is that um, this can be done for both systemic toxicity and for uh, non-systemic uh, toxicity or cancer non-threshold effects. Um, what we find uh, recalling in our dose-response uh, quantitative relationship, increasing the exposure or the dose of a chemical will cause a th uh, cross a threshold when biological effects start to occur. So this threshold is an important concept in risk assessment when we use or define these values uh, from our dose-response uh, uh, experiments. Um, what we find also is that we can define these uh, toxicity factors, these uh, th uh, threshold numbers, as uh, reference doses. And so this no effect level, and typically the no effect levels are actual quantitative data done in a ex comparative toxicology experiment. Okay, We typically do not extrapolate these numbers. These are actual numbers that come to us, and then we can apply safety standards associated with that. The reference and dose units uh, that we use uh, in human health risk assessment are typically milligrams of a constituent per kilogram receptor body weight per day, milligram per kilogram body weight per day, okay, in terms of our exposure. Um, when we do human health risk assessment, quite often we'll be looking at lifetime exposure in terms of our model, and we typically will use 70 years as a lifetime exposure number. So the number of days in 70 years, you can find out what the cumulative dose would be. So we can model dose uh, quantitatively uh, with this expression, this general equation, and we'll use, uh, and this can be modified depending upon the particular situation. Uh, this is not necessarily a theology class here in terms of the approach. This is a generalized equation. But uh, we can model the dose as the constituent concentration of the, in the medium of potential concern, and that, for example, might be drinking water. So this might be lead in drinking water. Uh, CR is the contact rate uh, and uh, of the medium of potential concern. So that might be how many liters per day that we actually uh, uh, drink it. Uh, EF is the exposure frequency um, with a medium of potential concern. And so that means uh, how many days per year we actually are going to be drinking water. And I hope that's every day. Uh, the body weight, uh, you'll notice we have a division sign here. So we're now inversely proportional to body weight. Uh, and, uh, for example, um, that means uh, that bigger people will have a different dose response than littler people, and we've kind of explored that as well in our quantitative relationships analysis. 
and then a UCF, which is just a generalized unit conversion factor, because some of these will have uh, different uh, uh, units, and we can kind of normalize them so that they all balance out and make sense at the end of the day. At the end of the day, what we end up with is some sort of risk model. There's two general approaches in the next lecture, the part two of this lecture. We'll talk about these in far more detail, but I'll introduce them here in this slide. The two generalized approaches are deterministic uh, analysis, and this is a point estimate analysis. This would involve, for example, a straightforward uh, insertion of your best guess for each one of them, the uh, um, attributes in that uh, risk equation we just showed you. And so, for example, we would estimate that uh, the uh, body weight uh, of the exposed population might be uh, 100 pounds. We would pick a point. We would pick a dose. We would pick the number of liters per day. You, I, and everybody else uh, that uh, takes a little bit of science and biology knows that, in fact, it's uh, normal logarithmic distributions that dominate populations. And so, for example, if I look at the body weight uh, distribution or if I go back to the distribution of the grades in the last exam, uh, those are going to have uh, some bell-shaped curve uh, attributes. And in fact, uh, by taking a point off that curve, we can underestimate risk for some of the population and overestimate risk for other segments of the population. Okay? However, we find that this is an easier sort of thing because by throwing this up, and especially think about the risk communication, I can talk about averages, and most people that have a high school education understand the concept of averages. And we can communicate that for the average person, this is going to be the risk. The alternative to that is probabilistic or stochastic analysis of risk. This is problematic, to say the least, when we're talking about risk communication. It involves a tremendous number of statistical representations. Uh, the uncertainty is quantified in this, but it's a far more complex and challenging task in terms of general public risk communication. Uh, it helps us as risk assessors do a more definitive job. It's a little bit more difficult, but not as uh, difficult as you might think, even if you're not particularly skilled in statistics. And this has a lot to do with the advent of very talented software that allow for us to model uncertainties associated with particular risk models. We'll talk about those in length during the next lecture. But this gives you an idea if we took uh, an analysis of the um, uh, hazard quotient or a risk equation where we have a toxicity factor, contaminant uh, con concentration, uh, and um, the body weight, and all of the different factors that go into this. Remember that each one of these, and it's, I'll go ahead and look at body weight here, each one of the factors that's in any risk analysis equation is going to have a distribution. So this, for example, is the normal distribution associated with body weights. Remember that when we do a deterministic analysis, we are going to pick an average, typically that the average or the mean of that particular distribution. And again, we have the potential uh, under or over representation of risk based on the, the, the normal distribution of body weights. Recognize that each one of the factors in our equation has some potential for distribution. For example, the contaminant concentration. In some people's drinking water, it might be low, but in others, it might be high. And typically, if we're sitting around a table as a group of risk assessors, risk assessors 
what we're going to do is be extremely conservative in our risk assessment. And so we're going to assume that everyone is exposed at the highest dose. And so typically our assumptions all along the way are going to be the worst case scenario. Okay? That's an important concept in risk analysis, and it's a useful concept because if we do a deterministic risk assessment where we do a worst case scenario analysis, in other words, we plug in the worst number that we can imagine or defend for each one of these inputs, and the result is suggests that it is not a risky situation, that the risk, the overall risk is low, that actually can be very helpful because we've said worst case scenario inputs, but we still don't have a risky situation. This is something where we can kind of shake hands and say we've done our job, worst case scenario modeling, and it is low or non-existent risk. Let's move on to more challenges. Uh, let's apply our resources more effectively to the other situations that may be more demanding. However, in a deterministic risk assessment, uh, even if it uh, is low risk in a deterministic, or especially if it projects out as a highly risky situation, then it challenges us where to apply our resources, what the next step might be. And typically the next step is uh, involved with enhancing the quality of the input data. What is the body weight of the exposed population? What is the contaminant cons uh, concentrations, uh, constituent concentrations of the contaminants? Uh, and that might involve, for example, more expense due to more sampling to get a better idea of what the, the range and average and medium of the uh, associated uh, uh, contamination is. So all of this involves kind of a stepwise and iterative analysis. Risk assessment is an ongoing process. It is really just a start-stop process. As we find out new information, it can reiterate the available knowledge with the new knowledge and we can actually come up with, in some cases, changes in the overall risk assessment in the same way we changed our risk assessment of above-ground nuclear testing. This is the first of a series of uh, photos uh, I'm going to use to break up this rather long lecture. Uh, this is from a personal collection of mine of risk-based uh, uh, communication. Uh, and it's something that I think the students in this class need to be aware of in our daily lives. I want you to spend the next week or so looking around you at signs. Uh, and not just stop signs, but uh, traffic signs are important. Caution. Uh, when you see a yellow sign indicating a curve ahead or, or reduce your speed, what's the implication there from a risk management background? Well, it may be that, that the uh, slippery when wet, uh, this bridge might be frozen in cold weather. All of these signs uh, impact our daily lives. So uh, w one of the assignments I have for you is just to open your eyes. Uh, we sometimes become blind to all of these safety warnings, and safety warnings and signs are a part of community risk assessment. In this particular case, this uh, individual is working at uh, obviously an industrial place. The sign says danger, inorganic arsenic. Uh, cancer hazard, authorized personnel only, no smoking or eating, a respirator required. 
And then it says caution, low headroom, and I would imagine that uh, this individual probably should also be wearing uh, a hard hat uh, in this particular uh, industrial uh, potential exposure. Uh, he might be protecting his lungs in terms of managing his own risk, but smacking your head on an over low overhead beam uh, might be uh, uh, a little bit more intimate and painful uh, to him as well. Well, the next step that we're going to talk about is what we introduced as the balancing uh, between uh, risk assessment and risk management. I introduced that these are best conducted as separate but integrated processes. The risk manager's mission is to protect human health, and so the risk manager wants to be very, very conservative. Uh, the risk assessor's mission is to provide this risk manager or the risk management group with the best information possible. Risk managers quite often have regulatory responsibilities. These are individuals that we have empowered through government uh, uh, positions uh, to be enforcers. In a certain sense, uh, the traffic cop is a risk manager. If they see you going through a stoplight uh, that is red, they are managing community risk by the fact that you've put other people in danger and they are going to penalize you for doing that uh, with a ticket if they see it. The risk assessor's mission is uh, to be honest. Uh, I think uh, they need to uh, be very balanced in their application of the knowledge that's generated in risk uh, assessment. Uh, sometimes risk assessment is done by uh, individuals that are tasked. Sometimes these very large groups, and there can be 10, 20, and perhaps even 50 people involved in a risk assessment task depending upon the complexity of the task. Sometimes the individuals come from different sides of the table. In other words, it can be the regulated community versus uh, a community interest or environmental activist group on the other side of the table. At the end of the day, the risk assessment has to come up with generalized agreement on the totalized outcome. Uh, typically, it is best if they leave their gun belts at the door, uh, even though they may have a dog in the fight. Uh, to try to come up with a best strategy. Uh, sometimes the first generation of risk assessment is this point deterministic, uh, point estimate. Uh, however, it can be confounding of the overall outcome because remember that we are typically doing worst case scenario outcomes. Okay, so a uh, next time that you take a look at uh, perhaps a risk analysis done, for example, by a newspaper writer of a particular situation where it says that the average of a particular uh, drinking water sample, for example, is five times uh, the limit, view that not necessarily just in terms of what the person writes, but how they came up with that number, whether or not it was modeled under a worst case scenario, and this is is this the best representation of risk? The next uh, series of slides, and almost uh, through the end of today's lecture, we're going to go through a structural summary, a framework, if you will, of risk assessment. And this is the US EPA Superfund Risk Assessment for Human Health. Uh, associated with hazardous waste uh, sites, uh, typically in Superfund. This was hazardous waste sites that uh, were historical in their origins, uh, so it doesn't involve active management of actively generated hazardous waste, but sites that have typically, in some cases, uh, 
been abandoned. The overall uh, formulation of the risk assessment process we're going to go through involves uh, the first step, which is problem formulation. Once we have formulated the problems, and we'll go through a detail of what each one of these is. Uh, we go through an analysis step where we do uh, exposure assessment and toxicity assessment. We actually analyze the chemical, analyze the exposure to that chemical. And then the third step in this risk assessment is this risk characterization of trying to kind of come up with how toxic is this particular situation, address that, and quantitize it and prepare it for communication to the next step. Now, in terms of breaking this down a little bit better, and again, uh, further on the lecture, we'll do some uh, better definitions of all of these different steps. But in the problem formulation step, what we're going to do is constituent screening. These are the chemical constituents associated with the site. So typically, we're going to take a broad view of chemical constituents that might be toxic. For example, if it's a mining site, obviously the metals associated with the mining or the products of mining are the constituents of major concern, but there might be as well some minor constituents. So for example, it might have been a lead mining operation, and obviously we're going to be concerned with screening lead, but for example, that same ore may have a trace amount of something that might be more toxic, like mercury. And so even though it's a minor component, it's relative toxicity might be significantly greater. We'll also do some, in, in uh, problem formulation, some receptor screening. Are we talking about people that uh, are, for instance, occupationally exposed to individuals? Are we talking about downwinders? Um, is the contamination on this site mobilized through air or water uh, such that there are downstream communities, downwind communities, uh, that have potential receptor impacts? And then exposure screening. How much? How often uh, do we drink the water that might be contaminated with the runoff of this site? And we use all of this information to develop a conceptual model of who, uh, of what, how, and who uh, is, is being perhaps uh, contaminated in terms of our risk analysis. We then use this in the next step, which is analysis. And in analysis, we're going to do two parts. They will involve exposure assessment and toxicity assessment. In exposure assessment, we do this uh, constituent and receptor characterization. So we try to actually uh, characterize uh, the constituents uh, by analyzing samples, how much lead is in the soil, how much lead is in the water, for example. In terms of a toxicity assessment, as we get all of these different constituents that we've analyzed. So this might be lead, zinc, uh, um, vanadium, uh, rubidium, maybe radium, mercury, arsenic on this contaminated site. We'll go through and characterize each one of the toxicants. We'll look them up in toxicity databases, find out what their uh, reference doses might be, what clinical signs, uh, clinical histories might be associated with human health exposure, what's uh, a reference dose, what's a safe exposure in terms of occupational or lifetime uh, exposure through, for example, drinking contaminated water. And then we'll construct a dose response analysis in the same way we constructed a dose-response analysis using IEUBK to try and get some quantitative outcome. We'll then go to the next step after analysis, and that's risk characterization. In risk characterization, the final step in this risk assessment process, we'll try and take a look at risk estimation. So we'll like it, take a look at, the, at integrating the exposure and toxicity uh, assessment 
Uh, we'll try to apply some uncertainty analysis, uh, see if we can quantify the uncertainty. How good of a result are we getting? If we are going through and doing a worst case scenario, and it's coming up that this is not a particularly risky constituent, we can then, for example, uh, maybe it's rubidium uh, that we're analyzing on this particular mining site. Uh, we find that uh, it's low toxicity, low concentration, it's not a risk. We can eliminate it from further screening based on the analysis thus far. We then come up with a risk description where we try to summarize the risk. We try to interpretate, interpret the, the significance of the risk. And for example, we can use this to perhaps even justify where we are going to focus our activities. Uh, for example, if one of the constituents presents the majority of the risk on this site, uh, this is the step where we start focusing our behaviors, our resources, our money uh, on uh, either uh, identifying or characterizing that risk a little bit better, or we start managing or mitigating that risk. So summarizing um, in terms of the, the framework, and we'll go uh, identify some of these more in detail, that risk assessment involves predictive modeling of potential human health uh, threats. We do have a risk assessment versus risk, risk management challenge. Uh, we identify these as distinct but integrated processes. In the risk assessment framework, we have those three major uh, steps, problem formulation, uh, analysis, and then risk characterization. And I want you to respect that this is an iterative process. We sometimes may go through this four, five, even 10 times in the management cycle of a contaminated area. Now, if we go back to problem formulation uh, to identify some of the more the, the details involved with these individual steps, this is where we screen the individual constituents of potential concern, sometimes referred to as COPEX, constituents of potential concern, COPC. Um, COPEX, uh, sometimes um, the, the, the operative word there, the strongest word is potential. Uh, this is where uh, worst case scenarios come in. We don't know much about this site. Uh, preliminary analysis have identified perhaps 18 potential uh, constituents uh, of concern. Uh, we then will do the same thing in terms of identification of receptors of potential concern. So for example, we might analyze the different human populations that have access to this site or might be impacted in terms of downwind downstream. So for example, we'll take not only community members and typical sort of average families, uh, we might take subpopulations, for example, children. Uh, we might take subpopulations as Native Americans or subsistence individuals. We might take as subpopulations hunters that gather uh, or hunt uh, the wildlife or the fish uh, that might be crossing this particular contamination. We'll try to identify various exposure pathways of potential concern. And this is a very outside-in type of process. We try to be very global in developing a conceptual model because we have plenty of opportunity to eliminate those, especially based on worst-case scenario development. So for example, in problem formulation, we might come up with a worst-case scenario of a group of individuals that are subsistence livers that camp out for a large majority of the year in the middle of this contaminated waste. They, they eat uh, the local plants growing on the site, they drink the water, and uh, they uh, fish the fish in, in the area. 
uh, a worst case scenario. Not particularly logical uh, if you're talking about a brownfield contaminated industrial zone in, in uh, New York City, but uh, this might be at least something that we have to put up on the table to uh, conceptualize uh, what is a worst case scenario and work down from there in terms of what we can agree on. And again, in these risk analysis, risk management uh, uh, processes, uh, there's a lot of uh, horse trading that goes on in terms of what is an acceptable model of risk. In terms of constituent screening, uh, if we're looking at the potential chemicals on the site, we'll take a look at those chemicals and ask ourselves, is there an applicable regulatory criteria associated with it? For example, lead in drinking water might be a criteria that's enforced against the lead that's just in the stream water. Um, is there some sort of site-specific background distribution? Does this area, because lead mining is happening here, have a normal and high natural background of lead? This is sometimes the case with naturally occurring contaminants such as lead. Uh, is there a conservative site-specific objective? Meaning, is this always going to be used in an industrial site, or should we be managing this as uh, backgrounds and playgrounds for schools and communities? Uh, there's a different sort of uh, site-specific objective in terms of what we are doing and how we are progressing in terms of final cleanups and what the relative risks are. And so if this is agricultural land, if this is different types of potential or projected uses, this might modify how we do our risk analysis. So we'll take a look at current and future land use in terms of receptor screening, uh, current and future air use, current and future water use. And some of these might be, for example, is it agricultural land? Uh, in other words, it's going to be in the human food chain that will have a certain uh, uh, risk analysis profile. Is it going to be paved as a commercial industrial property? Uh, or is it residential recreational with kids playing in the dirt in the backyard? All of these have a different uh, uh, level of concern in terms of receptor screening. What we try to do is identify um, the site receptor populations of potential concern that are associated with these different potential uses of the land and the resources associated with the land, such as the water. Another one of my risk uh, um, uh, photographs here, uh, this particular sign, it's a fence with barbed wire at the top, uh, a uh, uh, mobile community, migrant community living next door to this particular land. Uh, the sign says, uh, danger, hazardous waste area, unauthorized personnel keep out. Uh, and so you can see this is essentially the interface between contaminated area and human population. Well, one of the steps we've identified in our risk analysis is exposure pathway screening. And this is where we're going to go in and take a look at the actual chemicals and, and how they might actually uh, impact a population via some process of exposure. We'll ask ourselves, are these chemicals volatile? In other words, will they be Henry's Law dominant? If you remember Henry's Law from freshman chemistry, will they volatilize and we'll start smelling them if we're a downwinder uh, and be exposed that way? Uh, will it occur in terms of dust or particulates that might blow from this particular site? Uh, will it settle to water and on the populations? And uh, will that dust uh, be uh, a major exposure vector, as it is, for example, in lead, uh, to children in household environments? Will there be a release to surface water or to sediments? 
Uh, will it impact uh, drinking water, aquatic wildlife, uh, groundwater, irrigation water that's used in agriculture? All these are questions that are going to be asked in a risk assessment. Will there be a release to soils? Uh, will there be a potential groundwater impact because of its release to soils in terms of dissolution of the chemical? Will it impact wells, agriculture, some sort of food chain biota in terms of, for example, uh, dairy cattle that are grazing on a field that has uh, dust fallout from a contaminated waste zone. Those dairy cattle uh, have the potential to impact the human food supply through the production of milk. All of these things are analyzed in terms of potential pathways associated with a specific site. And so this is what people are doing, sitting around the table, trying to come up with these models, trying to come up with the best way to expend our resources, including our time, on managing the risk of these hazardous sites. The conceptual model that we come up with summarized in documents the results of these constituent receptor exposure pathway screenings. It does form the basis uh, for subsequent quantitative modeling uh, because once we do that, we can say, for example, what uh, the, the amount of air uh, that a person breathes, if it's an airborne contaminant, uh, how much water they drink. Uh, this is an effective tool for communication because we can then start talking about people. So if I'm standing up in front of a group and I'm talking about a subsistence liver in Alaska horizon that might be impacted by uh, caribou that are grazing on mining contaminated tundra uh, and how much the caribou uh, provides in terms of uh, dietary exposure, uh, where these individuals get their fresh water from, people can relate to people. They can relate to the models that we come up with and they can actually use this in their own personal analysis and we all try to tend to personalize situations. We have great empathy for potential human exposure and potential for human harm and so worst case scenarios are sometimes very effective communication tools in terms of uh, risk communication and risk management. In terms of the prom problem formulation summary, this is primarily a screening exercise uh, it's an exercise in conceptual model develop, and sometimes uh, it's assisted by rapid and simple quantitative modeling. So we come up with this. We do some worst-case scenarios. We s try to refine and define it. We'll then use this to focus subsequent more intensive efforts, uh, if any, because sometimes our worst-case scenarios, again, come up with really no risk, really no impact, and uh, we can move on. Um, we can take a look to, at various uh, sub-processes and other variables, uh, do a better job in kind of a second generation of version 2.0 of this problem formulation. And the other thing is, as these processes cycle, quite often uh, we have new information delivered to us. Uh, some site work might be going on in terms of site characterization, new constituents, uh, new levels of concern, uh, new human health indicator uh, data as these processes happen. The problem formulation summary will help uh, develop a working definition of an exposed population, um, and uh, but this might take more art than science. And what I mean by that, you have to be a creative thinker, because quite often, as a risk assessment, risk assessor, you may not be a member of this particular community. You may not even be from this part of the country. You may be working for a company or an agency and you're brought in to uh, actually uh, opine or work with a group of individuals in a contaminated site. 
Uh, sometimes it's a paper exercise. You're reviewing uh, an area of the country you've never set foot in, uh, just because of the nature of, uh, of how risk assessment is done. Uh, quite often that's not the case, but sometimes it is. But sometimes uh, coming up with this, uh, you know, for example, the subsistence liver uh, uh, individuals uh, uh, might require quite a bit of an imagination. You know, what if scenarios? What if somebody did this? What if? What? So how to define a worst case scenario, how to formulate this, uh, this uh, problem is sometimes creates a little bit of, uh, or uh, requires a little bit of creative juices. The problem formulation summary uh, sometimes uh, gives us quantitative aspects of uh, these uh, screening constituents, the pathways and the receptors. Uh, typically, it's done deterministically, so we'll do it uh, from a point uh, a source, a point uh, estimate. Um, some of the future site assumptions are important when we're doing a problem formulation. So, for example, if we know that this is going to forever be an industrial site, it's just the way the property is developed around it, we will manage our risk assessment for that future and present use. Uh, these summaries are excellent processes for project planning, and it's not necessarily just the first phase of a risk assessment uh, carried out in a site e examination. So there can be other aspects of these sorts of models that are used uh, in terms of not just managing contaminated sites, but managing the potential for contamination of sites from human impacts, human endeavors. Uh, these are associated with, uh, for example, you probably heard the term environmental impact statements. Uh, I uh, encourage you at some point uh, in your careers uh, as a student to go to the library and government documents section and actually get an environmental impact statement and sit down and read it. Typically, they're at least the size of a phone book. But you will find that many different disciplines, uh, many different experts, whether it's uh, wildlife biology, uh, architectural uh, analysis, archaeological analysis, all of these come to play in terms of doing good life cycle assessment of uh, a proposed human activity. And so this is a, a good thing to learn in terms of modeling scenarios. Um, as you well know, environmental impact is something that typically is mandated. Once we project what it might be, typically we'll find ourselves in a situation where we are tasked to monitoring, to manage uh, risk, to make sure that uh, we don't develop into a worst case scenario through neglect. And so, for example, a, a mining permit uh, might employ uh, weekly, monthly, daily monitoring of, for example, air or water that might be contaminated by the ongoing mining operations. Another sign for you, this particular one, again, a barbed wire fence. Uh, warning, no trespassing, contaminated area, avoid contact with soil and water. Uh, so, you know, the idea there is there is a risk communication associated with the relative risks of contacting soil and water in this site. In the analysis phase, uh, we broke this down, as you saw in the graphic, into two major components of exposure assessment and toxicity assessment. Exposure assessment involves constituent characterization, receptor characterization, and exposure analysis. Toxicity assessment is toxicant classification, analysis of the various databases and literature references associated with the toxicity of that chemical. 
and then some quantitative dose response analysis, uh, perhaps customized to our particular site-specific uh, situation. Um, in this uh, asset, uh, if you remember this, I'm going to break this into two major blocks, the exposure assessment block and the toxicity assessment. In exposure assessment, we have constituent characterization and receptor characterization, and we're doing some exposure analysis in this particular prior to risk characterization. In exposure assessment, this is the best opportunity we have to introduce site specificity. Site specificity is a very important concept to understand in risk analysis. What this means is that especially for uh, a naturally contaminated background, for example, if you go to Georgia, you will see the red clays of Georgia because of the iron and the abundance in the clays of Georgia. The iron in the natural background of Georgia soils is quite a bit higher than, for example, in the western United States. So there might be some site-specific uh, background information that are important in terms of identifying what the background exposure level is. This exposure assessment is usually the most intensive aspects of the quantitative uh, risk uh, modeling. There's a substantial amount of information available, and much of it is readily available in terms of things like uh, toxicity databases. Uh, sometimes we'll need to consider bioavailability. Now, for example, we've introduced and talked about lead. Lead comes to us as lead salts, lead metals, lead oxides, uh, lead phosphates, pyromorphites, uh, for example. All of these have different bioavailability. So if we're doing a dose response, we need to know which of those different species of lead we're actually dealing with because each of them have a distinct bioavailability. Uh, for carcinogens, we need to focus on the incremental cancer risk uh, because we don't have the same sort of dose response analysis, threshold dose, but we do have risk, incremental cancer risks that we can calculate. For example, uh, is it a background of one in a million or are we talking about one in 10,000? what is the risk and how is it changing relative to different cleanup levels or different levels of exposure in this site. For systemic toxins and exposure assessment, we need to consider uh, dietary intake. Uh, Sometimes uh, those are quanti uh, qualitative considerations may suffice, but uh, we also find that this is uh, often a quantitative uh, exposure analysis need to look at various correlations, uh, impacts, uh, the different relationships of toxicants and how they might uh, change each other's uh, impacts. There might be some spatial or temporal variability in the exposure. There might be some uh, likelihood of scenario occurrence and various exposure quantifi uh, quantifications. Uh, all of these are a part of this fairly complex exposure uh, assessment analysis. At the end of the day, we're going to have to come up with some models or some considerations for all of our scenarios. Sometimes, for example, we will be running models, uh, multiple models, uh, worst case or uh, scenarios, uh, moderate case scenarios, selective subpopulation scenarios, for example, children. And so exposure assessment isn't necessarily just one model. It can be sometimes multiple models. Another sign for you, this is actually, uh, I believe, from the Love Canal in upstate New York, historical photograph, danger, hazardous waste area, unauthorized personnel keep out. What's notable about this, this is a fence 
The sign is pointing outside of that fence, and if you look through the fence, you see houses. And so these are the houses uh, that were impacted uh, by the hazardous waste uh, site that they were built on um, in a residential community. Okay, we shift over in terms of our toxicity assessment side uh, of uh, exposure analysis. Uh, the toxicant classification, toxicity database analysis, and dose response analysis are the subset tasks of this part of the human health risk assessment. In toxicity assessment, uh, it's usually the most overrated aspect of risk modeling. Uh, it's often uh, most uncertain. Uh, there typically are some good databases available. Uh, for example, on your exam, uh, on resources, uh, on the, the Principles of Environmental Toxicology website, uh, we have a link to the National Library of Medicine Hazardous Substance Database. Uh, the Hazardous Substance Database is a very, very powerful tool uh, to get the synthesized information abstracts, dozens, hundreds of abstracts, uh, the bottom line assessment of, of what, for instance, a clinical study on an occupational exposure uh, of uh, uh, led in the workplace uh, for a particular case, uh, um, that write-up, uh, what are the major points of that write-up. Very powerful tool in terms of bringing to bear all the prior uh, investigational information, especially published peer-reviewed scientific literature, and putting that to play in your risk assessment. Uh, most toxicity factors have an enormous amount of lack of knowledge uh, that is hard to reduce. Uh, toxicity factors um, sometimes are generalized. Um, they're uh, sometimes very specific to particular applications, and tasking it to your application can be difficult. Uh, this has a lot to do with the difficulty and expense of toxicological studies. Uh, a rat trial in comparative toxicology may be uh, well over a million dollars uh, worth of cost and expense. Uh, and then there's some challenges or inherent ignorance uh, associated with the comparative toxicology that we do. Uh, we are not rats and mice. Uh, we are men and women. And so when we extrapolate data what is toxic to rats and mice, uh, we may be overestimating or we may be underestimating the uh, typical hundreds fold safety factor that we use in those comparative toxicology assessments. Uh, and as well, there may be a need for a bioavailability adjustment depending upon the particular toxicant. In risk characterization, uh, we can break this down, uh, as you saw on the uh, graphic, uh, into risk assess estimation and risk description. Risk estimation is an exposure and toxicity assessment uh, integration. Uh, typically coupled with uh, some level of uncertainty analysis. The risk description is a summary, summary of the risk. Uh, it's a, uh, typically written words, if you will, uh, trying to, to characterize uh, and define this in, in words uh, and numbers uh, and interpret this relative to the case at hand. In uh, this risk characterization, uh, breaking this down in terms of uh, uh, the graphic and the flowchart that we've been using, you saw that uh, it involves these two elements of risk estimation and risk description. This gives you uh, another uh, photograph. Uh, again, if you look uh, carefully, you can see the international symbol for uh, a uh, radioactive uh, uh, symbol here, uh, meaning that there is a potential for exposure to radioactivity. 
what I find interesting is that even though there's a potential exposure, this looks like a demolition activity. Uh, they have hard hats on and uh, bunny suits to protect uh, in terms of dust accumulation, but this gentleman here is clearly not wearing uh, a mask. Uh, and I would say the, the uh, most dangerous risk of uh, radioactivity is, is inhalation uh, exposure. Now, going back to our risk characterization, in risk description, it's a summary. Uh, typically, it gives a picture of the risk assessment. Typically, these summaries focus on the 95th percentile estimate. And so uh, what does this mean? You probably have heard me say uh, zero risk several times in this course. Uh, zero risk is the 100th percentile. And so we find that when we go way out on these risk curves, we can rarely afford. We might want to get to zero risk. Uh, we can rarely afford, as a society, zero risk associated in all of the complex activities that we do. There is general acceptance, and especially in an area where we're dealing with uncertainty, that the 95th percentile is an acceptable level of risk for risk management. Okay. And so typically, this 95th percentile, think about all of the different populations, uh, the different body weights, the different uh, concentrations, all of the numbers that we were put into these dose models. If we can cover in an acceptable way, a, by a standard or a cleanup level, 95th percentile uh, protection, um, we typically, as a society, uh, will uh, accept that. Uh, there will be people in these uh, situations that will demand 100% risk-free. Uh, it is not a realistic goal by any means to have zero risk in almost any of the activities that we do in this very complex life we live. In the risk description, there's also an interpretation. We try to put the estimated risk into a regulatory perspective. Uh, what we try and do is take a look at all of the applicable uh, laws and regulations. Uh, and then we also put it into a real world perspective. You know, can we live with this result? Can we afford this result? If we have to take every contaminated waste site and turn it into a pristine environment, we are going to be broke as a citizenry. This is a fact having been involved in many of these. So at some point in time, we're going to have to come to an assessment of what we as a society can do in terms of managing the risk of all of the products and processes that consume, uh, that we consume, uh, that are manufactured, that uh, give us the products, uh, the Nike sneakers that we wear, manage the life cycle, manage the production practices, put some thought into it before it becomes a hazardous problem. But in fact, our complex industrial society does have inherent risk associated with it. And we try as best as possible to balance the benefits and risk in this. In the risk characterization summary, uh, what we are going to be doing is explaining the uncertainty of the risk assessment. So we'll use descriptive statistics. Uh, there will be some sensitivity to independent variables. And I'll show you in the next lecture how we can use various software packages to identify the independent variables in our calculation that are the drivers for risk. 
If we have limited resources, uh, how many billions of dollars do you want to put into a particular site? And the, that money comes from somewhere. And if it's not being uh, put into one use, it's being put into another use. And so with these resources, it is best for us to do some analysis on where we get the best return for our investment in terms of cleanup of these sites. There are various uh, contributions that we can dissect in terms of major model components. We can look at uh, value of information analysis where we find out where the uncertainty is, uh, where perhaps we might want to invest in better quality data, better quality inputs, uh, and whether or not we need to do any further work to refine our risk analysis. Um, in terms of our summary, we typically will focus on the 95th percentile of the risk assessment. Uh, typical uh, from EPA's perspective and others, 95th percentile is societally ex uh, acceptable. It may not be satisfying to everyone, and especially those that view any risk uh, is unacceptable. And then finally, we want to put this uh, risk into various regulatory and reward contexts how, in fact, we are going to enforce this, what impact this is going to happen, uh, when is clean uh, clean enough in terms of cleanup of these sites. Um, you will sometimes hear, especially associated with Superfund site management, uh, the concept of the picnic standard. Uh, the picnic standard is that uh, the site is clean enough to have a sit-down picnic on and that, in fact, you could eat the dirt. Another sign for you, uh, next to a waterway, danger, polluted water, no wading, no swimming, no fishing, Division of Public Health. And so, in effect, uh, they've taken away all the fun, uh, if you will. It's an interesting point that one of the major goals, the legislative goals of the Clean Water Act, and we'll talk about that in our regulatory science lectures, is the goal of fishable and swimmable uh, rivers and natural waters in the United States. Well, going back to the assessment versus management task, again, to review that these are integrated but separate processes. They have different missions. Uh, the risk manager is uh, tasked to being protective. The risk assessor needs to be unbiased, uh, even though you may come from a point of bias in terms of the discussion and perhaps who your employer is in these discussions. Uh, you need to be open-minded about this because sometimes the outcome of a risky situation is risk, and risk is sometimes coupled with harm, harm of individuals, harm of next generation. Uh, there needs to be some precaution amongst people that there is a, a non-contamination of the two uh, processes of assessment and management. I'm going to finish up uh, today with a fairly uh, quick uh, overview of statistics, not a statistics course, but one of the things that you will recognize if you ever do become involved in a risk assessment, uh, risk analysis process, is that there will be a fairly large requirement for you to use the statistical descriptors. Uh, sometimes uh, various models, spatial and temporal analyses, modeling softwares, statistical software, uh, calculations, interpretations. And it's not a bad idea to have a good background in some of these. We're not going to talk about these in, in general, but I'll show you some of the, the uh, descriptors that are used uh, in risk assessment. There is 
uh, a use for measures of central tendency. These include the mean, the median, and the mode. Uh, what is the mean result in terms of an exposure analysis? You'll see that come up with what's the median. All of these will help us quantify uh, and to analyze the associated risk of a site. There is also measures of uncertainty. Uh, you probably all know and use the standard deviation, uh, sometimes the variance, coefficient of variation, the range, and also a term that you may not be familiar with, which is uh, informational entropy. Uh, how much do you know about a particular situation? Uh, I read a very good uh, uh, Wikipedia definition of informational entropy where they gave the example of uh, a situation of uh, you've got a basket full of colored balls. Uh, if each of the uh, colored balls are a different color, as you are blindly pulling out one ball after another, the ball that you pulled out and you identified the color would give you no information about what remains in terms of the colors uh, still in the basket. Whereas if you know that half of the balls in this basket were red and half were other colors, as you started pulling out balls and you started being able to identify the number that were red and the number that were other colors, then that would give you a little bit more information to be able to predict the next color of ball that would come out. You'd first start out with a prediction in that case because 50% of them are red that your chance of picking a red ball is about 50%, one in two, right? So uh, informational entropy is a term that recognizes uh, the amount of uh, uh, information that you have on a particular uh, sample, okay? So this uh, helps us in terms of uh, defining the uncertainty in a given uh, assessment task. You also find that uh, we will use very spatial and temporal analyses, projections, and model uh, systems. You know, for example, if you're dealing with a contaminated site, uh, you know, and in fact this uh, is a uh, site of a plume progression, the different colors in this plume. This is a groundwater plume. Uh, the red color being the highest concentration, the blue colors being the least concentration, the rainbow in between. Um, you can see the direction that it's going in. And for example, if this is the industrial area that is uh, contaminated uh, or is the source of contamination, if you're dealing with uh, a well, a public well system that is perhaps uh, five miles down gradient, you can project, do a temporal analysis of when that plume would reach that public well that helps you do a risk analysis of we have 10 years, we have to get this cleaned up and reverse this trend before there is a potential receptor impact. And these are useful in terms of risk assessment, risk analysis, and the predictive aspect of this risk management process. We'll also uh, find that you'll use uh, various types of probability uh, uh, concepts. Uh, the central limit theorem uh, that tells us about uh, the different relationships about the number of distributions and normal uh, or log normal distributions and how they are used uh, mathematically. Uh, quantifying uncertainty uh, is important and recognizing uncertainty in your results is even more important. Um, looking at distributions and uh, distributions for all of the inputs, uh, knowing what we know, knowing what we don't know and knowing 
not knowing what we uh, don't know is are all important attributes of uh, a good risk analysis. Uh, you can take a look at correlation analysis, uh, again, quantifying the uncertainty, quantifying the sensitivity and various contributions and the value of information for each and every one of the inputs into a risk assessment process, risk analysis process, is a part of this, this quantitative uh, assessment. We try and make it quantitative. Sometimes we have to use our best informed guesses. We hope to be right. This is where expert opinions and best case uh, experience, uh, um, expert level knowledge helps us a lot. Uh, risk analysis, risk assessment can be wrong, uh, but more often than not done correctly, uh, it is the best way that we have in terms of addressing risk versus benefits. Next time what we'll try to do is it'll be a, f a, f a f more concise uh, lecture, if you will. Uh, we're going to try to develop a little bit more of the understanding of this fundamental concept of uncertainty and how we approach 